0: This week and two more weeks in the coming months, uh, I think it's every other week, we'll be looking at this psalm. And so we'll just be looking at the first two verses of Psalm 24 this morning. Uh, but I'm going to read the whole psalm each time, it's not too long, and it's helpful to get a feel for the whole psalm as we look at it part by part. Let's pray and look at God's Word. Father, we praise you together with all creation, with the heavenly hosts, with the world visible and invisible. Lord, it's fitting, it's seemly for us to do so. Help us to see now why that's so, why it's right for us to praise you. Lord, you've made us. Without us, we've not contributed to it, but you and your grace have created, sustained, and rule over all things. You're ruling with power and purpose, and you deserve praise for it. Help shape our hearts now as we look at your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. How do you explain order and chaos? Why do some things run smoothly, consistently, never failing, while other things seem to happen just so randomly? How do you make sense of things happening that you'd rather not have happen? What would you say if a stranger asked you? They asked you that question. I wonder if you've thought about an answer before, but maybe you haven't for a while. I wonder if you've thought... uh about an answer why bad things happen, but you haven't had to think about it for a while. So at, at one point you've thought through carefully, but it just hasn't come up. Or maybe so many things have seemed to happen in the past weeks, months, and years that it's just become easier to rather than figure it out, press on and try and get through to tomorrow. How do you make sense of things happening that you'd rather not have happen? Just as important as a question of how to make sense of it, of order and chaos, is the question how to respond to it. How do you respond both to order and chaos? How do you respond, for instance, if you're on a walk with your daughter and she's crying to go home and then you realize she dropped her pacifier a few blocks back and to backtrack while she's crying? How do you respond in that situation? to minor, uh, seemingly random inconveniences? How do you respond to crushing news? How do you respond when someone sins against you in a major way? How do you respond when you're in serious trouble, financially, relationally, or even physically, your health? Do you worry? Do you complain or find someone to blame? Do you distract yourself with binging a show or reading another book or calling a friend? Do you drop to your knees in prayer or lift up your hands in praise? Our text this morning, Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2, calls us to praise God, to respond to all things with praise. God wants us to live lives that are marked by praise. Through trials, afflictions, seemingly random chaos, God wants us to unfailingly give Him praise through it all. This doesn't mean denying the full range of human emotion. Psalms are brutally realistic about our lives and about the human heart. Read the Psalms and you'll find sadness, confusion, worry, anger, joy, confidence. If you feel it, the Psalms sing it. But the refrain of the psalms, the chorus, even really the key that all the psalms are in is praise, praising God with your emotions, with your reactions, with your mouth, with your heart, praising God through sadness, praising God through plenty, through want, through uncertainty and comfort, on dull days, on full days. And that's just what the first two verses of Psalm 24 are doing. They call us to praise God. What we're looking at this morning is poetry. It's song. It's not part of a textbook. It's part of a hymn book. The passage this morning isn't teaching us. It's not just teaching us. It's encouraging us to respond to the truths it's containing with praise. To respond by honoring God, by trusting Him. To respond by rejoicing in Him. And it gives us good reason to praise him. The reason it gives us to praise him is that he's the creator. All we are, all we have, all we see is his. All creation is his, belongs to him. And the reason it belongs to him is because he made it. He's the Lord of creation because he created it. And that's a good thing. Look again with me at verses 1 and 2. A psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Looking down at that, you'll see that each of the two verses is made up of two lines. Two verses, two lines each. The first line of each verse states a fact. The second line, you'll see, restates it even builds upon it, advances it. Look at verse one. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Just that first line tells us that the earth, this planet, belongs to the Lord, to Yahweh. It and everything in it belongs to him. The plants, animals, the stuff, the stuff that the stuff produces, stuff that the stuff is made of, the seed, the fruit, the dirt, the clouds, the bugs, the birds, it's all his. It's our first line. Look at the second line. The second line says the same thing, but it's emphasizing this. That you too belong to the Lord. The word world is implying the inhabited world. Where people live. And the phrase, those who dwell therein, implies people. Those who are living in the world. People, you and me, are the dwellers in this world, and we too belong to the Lord. So it's not just stuff that belongs to him, but people. And it's not just some people, it's all people. Verse 1 is telling you that you belong to the Lord. You belong to the Lord. Verse 2 gives us the reason that you and everything else belongs to the Lord. Look at verse 2 with me. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Do you see the first word there in verse 2? For? That first word, for, is giving us the reason. The earth belongs to the Lord, for he has founded it. The earth belongs to the Lord because he created it. The earth belongs to the Lord based on the fact that he made it. He founded it. He established it. Creators, have rights over their creation. We know this. Authors and artists have claim to their material. If you read a novel or a song, it's yours. We recognize this with copyright laws. I just saw today that Mickey Mouse's copyright is up next year. But for 95 years, Disney's owned it. For the last 95 years, if you've tried to sell a picture of Mickey Mouse, it's not gonna go well for you. You're gonna get in trouble. If you start a business, create a product, or provide a service, it's yours. If you've ever watched the show Shark Tank, you'll know that everyone who comes on there with a new business owns that business. They're trying to sell part of it, but initially it's theirs to sell because they created it. They own it. If you've ever built Legos with a brother or sister, and you try to take a piece from something they made, what do you hear? That's mine. Stop it. They made it. They own it. How much more does God have rights over what he's made? He made the world. He owns it. It belongs to him. He has claim over all of it. It's his domain, and we're his subjects. He sets the rules. We owe him allegiance and obedience. One of the points that the psalmist is making that Yahweh isn't just a local, national God. He's the God of all the earth. Everyone's his. Every nation, tribe, and people. Every square inch belongs to him. In other words, relativism isn't an option. It isn't true. You can't say, Israel has Yahweh. We have Zeus. Live and let live. You have your truth. I have mine. You have your set of morals. I have mine. You now the psalmist obliterates that way of thinking. It's wrong. The whole earth is the Lord's because he founded it. He established it. But if you look at verse 2, look down on verse 2, it doesn't just say that he founded it and he established it. It says he founded it upon the seas and upon the rivers. What does that mean? This is poetry. Poetry uses metaphorical language. It's part of what makes poetry poetry. This kind of language is a little bit different. We can understand metaphors and, and word pictures like, the Lord is my shepherd, or the word is a light to my feet. They're kind of intuitive. They make sense to us what does it mean that the Lord founded the earth upon the seas and the rivers? Maybe if it just said seas, that would make sense. But what does it mean that he founded the world upon the rivers? I think the best explanation is that the psalmist is referring to a Canaanite story about their false gods. The words the psalmist uses in verse 2 for sea and river are yom, and Nahar. Yom and Nahar, for sea and river. The Canaanites had a god of chaos, a god who represented unpredictable, destructive forces of nature. And he went by two names, Yom and Nahar. The sea, Yom, was his domain. He was the king of the rivers, Nahar. In one story that they had, the main god that the Canaanite people, this is the people who lived in Israel before the Jews, the the, the main god that the Canaanites worshipped, Baal, has a, a long political and even violent struggle for power with Yom, this god of chaos. Uh, there, there's this huge pantheon of go- gods if you think of the Norse gods or Marvel or the Greek gods. You have all these gods that are fighting. They're all taking sides, and they're all vying for power. But finally, after a few failed attempts, is able to strike a fatal blow to Yom. With three blows from a club, the first two don't take, but the third one does, Baal wins. Chaos is subdued. Yom is cast into the sea. This was the Canaanites' idolatrous attempt to explain the good order they saw around them. They saw that day follows night. Spring always comes after winter. Seeds grow plants. Plants grow fruit. There's order all around them. Sure, sometimes storms come. Another nation comes and wages war. A fire would break out. But there's an overwhelming amount of order that needs to be explained somehow. And this is how they tried to explain it. But the psalmist David laughs at this. God laughs at this attempt to explain the order in the universe. Look at the difference between Baal's struggle to bring order with Yahweh's great power and purpose. The true God of creation the God of all the earth, is powerful and has purpose. And his power and purpose give us a reason to praise him. Far above the best reason that the Canaanites had to praise their false idol, Baal. What David's doing here in this psalm isn't validating the Canaanites' story. He's not saying they got it right, but instead of Baal, it was Yahweh who wins over Yom. David's doing is taking their cosmic imagery and showing how much greater the founder of the seas are than this myth that fights against the sea. God, the true God, the God of Israel, he is powerful. He's powerful beyond our comprehension, beyond anything we can imagine. Humans, we can imagine a fight a struggle between two people, two forces, and one of them's stronger and they come out on top. Baal literally uses a club to defeat Yom. This is something we can imagine. We can comprehend. We can come up with. We can't imagine. We can't even begin to wrap our heads around God speaking the universe into existence. We can't fathom. The power of creating everything, of causing all things to exist, creating it out of nothing. God alone exists and has existed eternally. He alone existed, it's not even appropriate to say before time, but if you can sort of start to think about it, God alone existed before time, before space, before these three dimensions we have. God created all these things. He simply was. Then he creates. And all we see, all we don't see, came into existence. Hebrews 11.3 says, The universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. We can't wrap our minds around this. God's infinitely powerful. He's almighty. He hasn't struggled with chaos and and overcome. He hasn't waged a really successful war on the sea, on the hard-to-control parts of nature. He created nature, the sea. You could even say he created chaos. He created it and effortlessly forms the inhabited world out of it. As he tells Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut the seas with with doors when it burst out of the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors? and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Where were you, God says? Where was Baal? Where was Yom? God creates, and he rules over his creation with power. psalmist isn't giving us an option of thinking of God as some kind of divine watchmaker, that sets the world in motion, spins it, and then steps back to see what will happen. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. His relationship to his creation isn't that of an absentee landlord. He doesn't own a property and let people live in it and come around once in a while to see how things are going. He's not a landlord that you text or call to fix something. You have to text him last week, last month, it's been a couple months, and maybe he'll get around to it. Maybe he'll come by and visit if you forget to pay your rent. No, that's not how Jesus describes God's relationship with his creation. Jesus says God's power to create overflows into his power to keep and care for his creation. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus presents a God who's intimately involved in every aspect of the world. From individual flowers and birds, to your clothing and daily bread, to the judgments you make and the way you treat others. God's a loving, fatherly provider, ruler, and judge. His relationship to creation is one of creator and keeper, owner and ruler. Creation's not his enemy, it's an enti- it's not an entity he's fighting against. It's something that does his bidding. It's not something he watches for entertainment or visits occasionally. He's involved in every moment, every molecule. The one who gives creation existence keeps it in existence. All creation is always at all time dependent on God's for it, God for its existence. means if God were to stop willing you into existence, would you simply stop existing? From the greatest to the least, God upholds it all. From the Milky Way to the Grand Canyon, to the small gross worm after a rainstorm, from the most excellent, selfless, helpful, kind person you know, to the most rotten scoundrel you can think of, God upholds them all that includes every moment in your life. From the least moment to the greatest, God's sovereign over it. He upholds it by his power. From a seemingly meaningless commute to work, to the birth of your baby, to your sinful action, to the faith you have in Christ, God's sovereign over it all. In the same way that stuff couldn't be, couldn't exist apart from God, Events can't happen apart from it. That means that what seems random, what seems to be chaos, what we can't make sense of from our perspective is under the power of God. God's not doing his best to keep things in control like Baal. He's guiding every moment with perfect power. This is the first step and responding rightly, responding with praise to anything that happens in our lives. We have to acknowledge God's power in it. In 2 Samuel 16, we see David acknowledge God's power in a situation that's not going his way. 2 Samuel 16, what's going on is that David, he's the king, but he's on the run from his son Absalom. Things aren't going so well in his reign. And what, so he's on the run and he encounters a man from Saul's house, from the the king that was before David, and he displaced. So this guy from Saul's house, Shammai, we'll see, he's not a fan of David and his reign. But he encounters him as he's in a sort of exile. 2 Samuel 16, 5 through 10. When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerah. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man, the Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into, your, into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, one of David's companions, then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? One of the best insults in scripture, I think. Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? David responds to this insult, faithful. He doesn't let him go and Chop off his head. He responds faithfully because he sees God behind it. He recognizes God's power, his providence in this event. This event that didn't feel good, that he didn't like, but he acknowledges God's power behind it. And he's not saying that this man's a prophet and that God's literally came and whispered into his ear and said, Curse David. This man's done it freely. David sees God in it. We need to see God's power behind all that befalls us. That's the first step. It's not every step. Uh, If that's just the only step we take, that's fatalism. But it's the first step in responding to affliction, to success, to problems, to prosperity. First step is acknowledging God's power behind it. Peter says the same thing. In the New Testament, 1 Peter 4.19, Peter says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to the faithful creator while doing good. According to Peter, suffering is according to God's will. We have to see that in our suffering, in our chaos, in our success, in whatever. We have to acknowledge God's power in order to do the second half of the verse, in order to entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. But to praise God for his rule, and that's what our Psalms calling us to do, to praise him for his rule, we need to see more than just his power. We need to know his purpose, too. In God's power, there's always purpose. God powerfully creates, and then we see his purpose, in the very first instance, in the order of creation. We see structure and wisdom, even divine deliberation. When he makes man, he speaks among himself in the Trinity. There's divine deliberation, intentionality in creation. In Genesis 1, day follows night, Lights go where they should go. Animals go where they should go. Man and woman where they should go. God's not responding to situations the best he can. Every minute detail has purpose behind it. He's not like Baal, who's struggling against chaos to climb his way to the throne of heaven, who's responding to the world, who's responding to events that are given him very much out of his control and trying to bring good, trying to bring order out of a situation. God's not trying to make the best out of a tough situation. He's intentional with every step of creation and with every moment of rule after creation. There's good, wise, divine purpose in it all. He hasn't established his reign after luckily coming out on top. Our psalm says, He established the world and on the seas and the rivers. He's actually purposefully built the world on these things that represent chaos to show his power. There's purpose in his power. He intentionally makes the sea magnificent, dangerous, huge, and harsh. He does it on purpose. He does it so that he can tell us so that he can show us that this massive expanse that's totally out of our control fits in the palm of his hand. He does it to show that the greatest chaos, the greatest power, the greatest problems we can imagine, all actually serve his purpose. What is his purpose? His purpose, his great, grand purpose in all of history is to glorify himself and the redemption of his people in Christ. To glorify himself by redeeming his people in Christ. We see God's power and purpose when we see what he's doing from beginning to end. When we follow the story of history from Genesis to Revelation. God founds the world in Genesis on the seas he establishes it on the rivers. In Genesis 1, God creates the world. And what does the world look like? It's really just an expanse of sea. And then by his word, he separates the seas and brings forth dry land. In Genesis 2, in the Garden of Eden, we see a river flowing out of it and dividing into four. God founds the earth on the seas and the inhabitable parts of it garden on the rivers. Then as we follow the story, we see the seas and rivers come up again, When we get to Israel. How does God save Israel? He rescues Israel from Egypt by bringing them through the Red Sea, parting, walk on dry land, and he brings them into the land of Canaan by doing the same thing over the river Jordan. God creates and redeems on the seas and the rivers. He puts his great power on display, triumphing over nature, triumphing over world powers with ease, doing what he wants with his creation. And then, he triumphs over the greatest power in creation, the greatest power in your life, the greatest power besides himself. He triumphs over sin, And death. He triumphs over the powers of hell itself. And he does so in Christ. God causes the floodwaters of sin to rise up over Christ. He brings the raging wrath of death itself to consume Christ on the cross. The man Christ who walked on the sea calmed the waves. The God man Christ is overwhelmed by the powers of the Jewish leaders and the Roman government. He's marched to a cross in weakness and humiliation. He's conquered by his enemies. Baal struck Yom three times and won. Christ is struck with three nails and dies. But it's through that chaos, the destructive powers of sin and death, God overcomes sin and death. In Acts 4, Peter and the Apostles say this. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand, and your plan, had predestined to take place. Whatever God's hand is power and his plan, his purpose, whatever he had predestined to take place. God powerfully and purposefully uses chaos and rebellion, even evil and sin, to accomplish salvation, to save his people. good news of the gospel is that in God's power and purpose, everyone who comes to Christ will be saved from the chaos, destruction, and wrath of sin and death. The wrath that we deserve because of our rebellion against the Creator who owns us. Everyone who comes to Christ will find that He's taken the raging wrath of God that you and I deserve. He's taken it upon Himself. He's paid the debt. He's suffered in our place. He's endured the wrath that we deserve the wrath that the greatest natural forces that we can imagine only give us a slight idea of. Turn to Christ and be saved. God founded the world on the seas and rivers. Turn to Christ and stand on a more solid foundation than the waters. Turn to Christ and you'll find him to be a solid rock, an immovable foundation. Build your life on him, And find the storms and waves of this life to be nothing compared to the strength of our Savior. Turn to Christ and find that the foundations of your salvation run far deeper than the bottom of the sea. The roots of your salvation go back farther even than Genesis 1. Christian, the roots of your salvation go back to God's electing grace before the foundation of the world. That means that the Christian's salvation is more sure than the literal ground we're standing on. God's planted you and his power and purpose in the chair you're sitting in this morning. You're not going to fall through the floor. Neither can you fall through the saving grace of God. Nothing can stop his power to save you. Do you see this as God's great purpose in your life? your salvation from justification to sanctification to glorification? How have you seen God work this saving purpose in your life? Is he working in it now? How is he tearing you away from this world, from your sin? How is he making you look more and more like Christ? Do you see every moment in your life? leading to that good end, Christ-likeness. What is the end? In the end, what do we see? In Revelation, these destructive forces of nature, the seas and the rivers, become servants of his glory. In John's vision of heaven, God's seated on a throne, And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And flowing out from the throne, in Revelation 22, we see a river. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. As sure as God founded the world, as sure as He saves people in Christ, He'll bring about the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, where all creation displays His glory, where all His redeemed people will sing His praise. But until we see that sea of glass until we taste from that river, we'll need constant reminders, constant encouragement, constant refreshing to trust God, to sing his praises. For now, God continues to send us winds and waves and floods. The chaos of this world, under his power and purpose, will continue for a time. And Sometimes, waves are overwhelming and it's all we can see. So God, in His grace, has kindly given us three places to go to see His power and purpose. Three reminders He's given us. Three gifts that He knows we need. The first is nature. In general revelation, God's given us nature to see His power and purpose. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day-to-day pours out speech, and night-to-night reveals knowledge. The creation itself can't help but reflect elements of its creator. As Paul says in Romans 1, for his, that's God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. All we see is part of creation. All we see reflects the Creator. All we see is part of creation. But most of what we see day to day is man-made. And this can sometimes give us an excessive sense of our own power. We can build iPhones and skyscrapers. If most of what I see was shaped by someone like me, we can forget that God's the one who made all this stuff. Who gives order to the molecules that it's made of. Who? gives the very logic and physics necessary to build those things. But nature, when untouched by man, can help remind us of the magnitude of his goodness. So go for a hike. Sit outside when you can. Feel the wind and the sun on you. Spend time looking at things that man hasn't touched, that exist and are shaped and grow only because of God. So God's given us three places to see his power and purpose. The first is nature. The second is the word, God's special revelation. Nature shows us God's power, but God's word shows us a greater power. Nature shows us his power to create, his word, his power to recreate. We know of God's saving power and redemptive purpose only in the word. God's word alone is where we hear from God with clarity and authority about how rebellious creatures like us can be brought into a right relationship with their Creator. The Word only tells us what God expects from us and how we're supposed to live. The Word alone shows us the redemptive power and purpose of God. The Word alone gives us Christ. So commit, as we move to a new year, to spending time in the Word this year. It's a great time to start a Bible reading plan. Find one, anyone, and commit to it. There will be storm, storms and waves and floods this year. The Word keeps us tied to the rock of Christ. The Word reminds us daily of His strength, His ability to keep us, to bring us safely home. God's given us general revelation, nature, special revelation, His Word, he's also given us the church. The church, the people of God, reveals his power and purpose. Here, we see the effects of his saving power firsthand. The church is where we encourage, help, and remind one another of God's power and purpose in our lives. The church is where we see, sing, pray, preach, and point one another to him. We need the church's hymns. We need them not only to express our praise, but to encourage us and remind us to praise. We need prayers like Dave's and Nathan's this morning. Prayers that have real power. We need examples of other weak and storm-tossed sheep who've been faithful under affliction. God knows we need to see Lily's example. He knows we need to see Judy's steadfastness. If God's given them strength and weakness, he can strengthen you too. We need brothers and sisters who know us, who love us, who can warn, encourage, teach, and equip us. God works powerfully and purposefully through one another in the church. We need the church, and the world needs the church. The world needs to see the church, the preview of the new creation, A place where love and holiness, where repentance and grace are on display. The church, the Bible, and nature. Three places God's given us to remind us of his power and purpose. Three concert halls where he proclaims his goodness and where we can respond with the applause of praise. Will you praise him? Will you praise him for the goodness and order in your life? Will you praise him in the trial you're facing now? Will you praise him in the next one? Let's pray. Father, we praise you. You have created by your word and spirit, wisdom and purpose, power, Pray that you'd grow us in grace, that you'd grow us in our ability to see your power and purpose. Pray that we would look to Christ, that you would keep him before our eyes, the lamb standing as though slain before a sea of glass or a river as of crystal. Lord, help us to praise him. Grow us in grace. Make us a people of praise. Show your power in our weakness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.